The wedding ceremony happens to be one of the most joyful, exciting events that mankind is able to enjoy. I don't know how many of you have been to a wedding, uh, but I, as, as a pastor, have officiated over many weddings. Uh, in fact, it was recently that I was in the uh, country of Romania, and a young couple that I had uh, performed the wedding for 25 years ago showed up to uh, let me know that they were still together. Uh, weddings are quite different in different places, and I've had the joy of celebrating many of the different weddings in different places, uh, even with scuba divers diving and coming out with their wetsuits on, putting on their gown and their and the uh, the, the tuxedo, and performing the wedding. And then as soon as they got finished, jumping back into the sea and going back scuba diving. I've, I've had quite interesting experiences with weddings. And they happen to be uh, occasions of, uh, of excitement, joy, happiness. And it's always been amazing how, uh, how wonderful these occasions are. However, weddings also uh, create an environment for people to make the most restrictive vows that anybody can make. As a groom is standing there, he is making a pledge of loyalty and faithfulness to be with that one lady for the rest of his life. Now, if you don't consider that restrictive, uh, I don't know what is because you're committing yourself to a life experience with that person. And uh, the young lady as well, she's excited, she's anxious, she's waiting for the uh, finally I do, so that they can uh, uh, sense the joy and the thrill of being married together. But however, that I do carries with it quite a weight of responsibility. And I don't know any wedding where the groom is standing there thinking, what did I get it into? Uh, I'm going to have to support this girl for the rest of her life. That means I'm going to have to buy health insurance. I'm going to have to buy her a car. I'm going to have to buy her all her clothing. I'm going to have to get her a house. And uh, all that, by the time I'm finished, is going to cost me several millions of dollars. Frankly, I've never come across a groom that has thought that way. They're... They, they consider any, any expense a joy. And when they make those vows that are restrictive, they're making vows without really knowing what is ahead. But it doesn't matter to them because there's one element that enables two people to come to the position and the moment where they're willing to vow that they will be together till death do us part. And that element is called love. When uh, there's love, the result is that joy comes with whatever restriction the person is committing themselves to. So when you love somebody, uh, you're willing to make whatever sacrifice that you need to make in order to uh, enjoy whatever relationship you can have with that person that you're going to live forever. So 
The title of this subject this morning is called Vows of Freedom. Let's pray. Our Father, as we study this particular subject, Vows of Freedom, we pray that you'll bless us and that you'll grant us your grace to be able to understand and appreciate those commitments that a person can make in relationship with Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Those same commitments that a person makes to another person, a person also comes to the place when he discovers Christ to make to Christ. The vow is not a vow of restriction. It is a vow of freedom. But the reason why it's a vow of freedom is because that special element is present. And that element, again, is love. In fact, Jesus says, if you love me, notice the rest of the passage, keep my commandments. That's John 14, 15. So love brings with it responsibility. If you love me, the result is that you will then keep my commandments. And so when a person enters into a relationship with God, he enters into a love relationship. And that love relationship brings along with it the same kind of restrictions that a young man makes to a bride or a bride makes to a groom. In other words, they're willing to keep themselves to each, to, for each other, to support to uh, love, to cherish uh, in sickness or in health, uh, in uh, poverty or prosperity, or whatever may come, they are willing to make those commitments. And when a person follows Christ, the love for Christ leads you, motivates you to want to do whatever he asks you to do. And that's because you love him. Notice what it says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive because we keep his commandments. And notice the next part. And do those things that are pleasing in his sight. A husband who loves a wife wants to do that which pleases her. A wife that loves a husband, likewise, has a mutual willingness to uh, encourage to please one another. So love brings that relationship about. But in order for us to have that love, love is not something that we generate and somehow uh, we decide that we're going to increase more of it because we have a fountain of it. Love that we're speaking about is the love that God places in the heart. And when God places his love in your heart, you then can experience the next verse, which says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so the love of Christ then in the heart enables you then to want to do all you can to please the master, which means then that for the Christian, he recognizes that it, it, the, the love of Christ uh, constrains the person to bring his habits, 
his, his acts, his thoughts, his words to be, as the scripture says, in captivity to Christ. Now notice that this incorporates uh, whatever you do. Notice what the verse says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. Therefore, whether whatever you eat or drink or what you, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Love, that wonderful element that God gives to the human heart, increases. And the more you know him, the more you love him. Now, I'm not speaking about the, the other kinds of love. There's a the romantic love. And that ro love is okay, but romance is not actually love. Romance can be motivated by simply something selfish. But we're not speaking about that kind of love or the love that is a love between a friend and a friend. We're speaking about the, what the Bible calls the agape love, the, the divine love that enables an individual who accepts Christ to make a change in his life to conform to do whatever pleases his master, and that is Christ. Well, part of that has to do with what you eat. Notice the verse says, whatever you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, we find that God, in creating Adam and Eve, made sure that he took care of them by providing what was best for their health. Not only did he create a beautiful environment for them, but he also created food for them. And the scripture says in, in uh, Genesis 1.29 that everything that was a seed, the fruit that had a seed in it, or the seed, was to be for man's meat, which is an old word meaning food. And so God, loving Adam and Eve, who when he created, through love, gave to them that which would be best for them. That's the way moms function. My mother had six boys, and she always made sure that she provided what she considered to be the best food for us. Now, I have to confess to you that mom did not necessarily make the best food for us, but in her mind, she thought she was making the best food. She was motivated because she loved us, and she would always do whatever possible to make sure that her children never went hungry. So that dear mother raised six boys in the ghettos of New York City, and I can tell you this, I can, I can actually testify to it, that we never went hungry as far as I can remember. Genesis 1, verse 29, then God gives us the first food. And he also provided something called the tree of life. And this particular tree of life was provided for man's uh, subsistence. In other words, uh, from this tree, man as he ate could live forever. Isn't that wonderful about a God that he thought about the wellness and the happiness of his children, and so he provided good, healthy food. I'm thankful for that because I love uh, the fruit and the, all the things that God made. Just wonderful to know that we can. Now, I notice, notice what happens, however, from that beginning of a perfect diet, man's diet began to change. In Genesis 3.18, 
when man fell into sin, his diet changed from being a fruitarian, uh, one who ate the seeds or that which was a, a fruit that had a seed in it. Uh, and the animals in verse 30, by the way, of Genesis chapter 1, were to eat the green uh, herbs of the field. So animal food was provided for animals and human food was provided for humans. However, something interesting happened when mankind fell. God then added to his diet something called the green herb of the field, which was originally for the animal kingdom. So after that then, man began to decline spiritually and morally speaking, and it came to the place where the Bible says that man's thoughts were evil continually. And uh, God had to do something to save the human race. In order to save the human race, he selected those that were savable that he could replant again, just like we do today. If we're going to try to plant an, another tree or something, we want a good tree to plant. And so God then replanted mankind uh, on the other side of the flood. And again, this particular time, God allowed man to have something even more that added to his diet because obviously everything was destroyed. There was nothing around except whatever they still had in the ark for food. And of course, God then allowed them to use animals for food. But it's interesting in Genesis 6.21, it says that they ought to eat food that is eaten. In other words, not everything that God created was to be food but that which he created for food was to be eaten. And so after then, he allowed meat to become part of the diet, but it was clean meat. Now there was a difference between clean meat and unclean meat. And the clean meat, while it was not the best diet, because when you think about it, all human life, and I'm speaking about man and animals, all subsists from what comes out of the ground, uh, either first hand or second hand. And so uh, the deer or the cow eats the grass, the grain, firsthand. But then the, the animals, the lion, etc., who is uh, a meat eater, eats the nutrients secondhand. The cow eats it firsthand, and then the animal eats the cow, which then makes it secondhand nutrition. But wherever, wherever you get that, uh, the nutrition, God said it needed to be from a clean source. And so they were clean animals and they were also unclean animals that God created to uh, provide uh, cleanliness for the, for the ground and all that. So in Genesis 9, verse 3 to 5, God then told them that they could eat meat but not use blood. But even if they ate the meat, that there would be a consequence for eating meat. And the consequence was simply that mankind began to... Uh, uh, shrink, and his lifespan began to also shrink. So whereas man lived about a thousand years before the flood, the lifespan began to be cut, and as man partook more of meat, uh, he also cut his lifespan. So man now, it's if he lives 120 years, we consider that, wow, this person is a very old person, lives a long time. And so most of us live, uh, as the Bible says, three score and 10, which is basically 60 and 10 is 70. But if by reason of strength, you live 
fourth core, the Bible says, yet you are like the, the uh, grain that grows and then disappears. And so here God allowed man to have a certain diet. But God then told mankind to stay away from the unclean foods. And that's like the pig. And he actually, in Leviticus chapter 11, he gave them a list of the difference between clean animals, clean fowls, and clean fish, and unclean fowls, unclean animals, and unclean fish. So that would choose the cut and parts of hoof is clean. But that would only choose the cut or only parts of the hoof is not clean. The same thing, for example, with the fish. It has to have fins and scales. If it doesn't have both, then it's considered to be unclean, and so on. You can read Leviticus chapter 11, verses 1 through 47, and see the, the entire list, and think about it, that God in his mercy wanted to make sure that even though man partook of meat, that man would eat the best type of meat, because by eating flesh, uh, the diet, uh, pardon me, as being part of the diet, it actually diminishes the health and the strength and the longevity. So when a person accepts the Lord and the Lord gives us counsel as to what to eat, uh, then you, because you love him, you accept that. Now I have to tell you that when I first was confronted with this, I used to uh, eat pork chops, and my mother used to provide all sorts of uh, uh, meats uh, or food from the swine or the pork. However, when I became a Christian and began to read through the Bible and discovered that God was interested in my well-being and my health, uh, I uh, said, sure, that's what God wants. I love him. He has saved me. He has changed my life. He has rescued me from sin. I'm willing to eat whatever he wants me to eat. And so, for me, it became very, very simple to make a change. Other people have a struggle to make the change, but in reality, it is the best. Because listen, today, many people are dying from the COVID-19, uh, but from other diseases as well. And most of the diseases today, the influences that come about, come actually from the animal kingdom. And so if people uh, want to be healthy, they should cut down or cut completely out of flesh foods because now we see then that most of the diseases, at least 30 of them that we know about, come from the animal kingdom, the swine flu, the, the uh, bird flu, uh, the uh, hectavirus, the HIV, uh, and now this particular COVID-19 originate from the animal kingdom. Obviously then, God knowing what was best for us, provided for us the best of diet in as much as he loves us. Aren't you glad that God loves you and that he gives you that which is best for you? Now, I think you and I can relate to this. Mother may give you what, you, what she thinks is best, but you may not agree with mom. And so I remember, for example, one of the things I did not like, and by the way, uh, when they asked me on security what uh, questions uh, I would like to have them ask in case I needed to uh, get into something, they asked me which was the, the food that you loved the best and which was the food that you loved the least. Well, for me, that was simple. Uh, I grew up around a lot of mangoes. I love mangoes. So when they asked me the question, what's your best favorite fruit? Mango. 
when they ask me what's your favorite, what's your food that's not favorite? Okra. I cannot handle okra. But mom, she would prepare it for us and she tried to make us, this is good food for you. It'll keep you healthy. Well, it didn't matter for, to me how much she said it'll keep me healthy. I just couldn't tolerate the okra. Anyway, I now eat okra um, in, when it's prepared the way I think it's more palatable. But anyway, I think you and I can relate to that. There are things that our parents try to encourage us to eat that's for our best good. Why? Because they love us. We may not appreciate it, but the reality is that if we come to Christ and we have a challenge with whatever he requests of us, he will provide the power to enable you to make the change. So good news, you're not on your own. God can enable you to make that particular change so that you can please him. Now, uh, Jesus was a one who didn't uh, support or encourage um, unclean foods. Now, you may say, how do you know that? Well, it's interesting. Uh, it's on, on a few occasions, Jesus fed people. And uh, in one occasion, in John 6, verse 12, it says, when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Well, what Jesus did was there was a basket of bread and some little fish, and Jesus then multiplied that, and people were able to eat of this. But Jesus was one that didn't like throwing good food away. Just like my mother, she made us clean the plate every time we ate. I don't want you to throw any food away because there are many people that are starving to death and here God blesses us with food, so you clean the plate. Well, we learned to clean the plate. So Jesus then tells the disciples, you need to gather what remains, that nothing be what? That nothing be lost. So Jesus did not believe in wasting good food. Do you agree with me? Yes. In fact, he did that twice, when he fed the 4,000 and he fed the 5,000. Well, uh, what about the prodigal son? When Jesus tells a story about the prodigal son, it's interesting that Jesus uses an unclean animal to show the, the consequence of turning away and leaving home. And that was the prodigal son did not want to abide at home. He wanted to be free. And by the way, there's no real freedom apart from God's will. But he thought he wanted to be free, and so he went out there to be free, and he wasted his substance, and by the time he had nothing, uh, and uh, his friends left him, he was left with only feeding swine and eating the food that was given to the swine. And as far as the Bible is concerned, that's the lowest thing that the Jew could do, and that was to eat swine or eat that which was fed to the swine. Now, Jesus then did not waste good food, and yet he uses unclean animals to show that when a person turns from God, a prodigal son, it is as if though he is turning to uh, eating unclean food or being around unclean food. Here's another example. Jesus said, Give not that which is holy unto what? 
unto dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. What's amazing is that when uh, Jesus fed the multitudes of the people and gathered the rest, uh, when it came to swine, Jesus did not permit the using of swine, but rather used swine as an example of apostasy, turning away from God. Now, he uses unclean animals throughout the New Testament to show that unfaithfulness to God is like, for example, it happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Uh, pigs and dogs then are used in the Bible as symbols of apostasy. The prodigal son becomes an apostate, etc. And so unclean foods were that which the Lord dis discouraged by parables and by counsel. Obviously, he wants you to be healthy. In fact, in Isaiah 66, at verse 15 through 17, I want you to notice what it says concerning when Jesus actually returns. Notice what it says. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Now notice what the next verse says. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, saith the Lord. Now, I know that there are people who think that at the cross, Jesus cleaned everything. However, that is not supported by scripture. Uh, they misused the vision of Peter. Peter had a vision when he was up on the rooftop. He got hungry about noontime and fell asleep, and, and he had a vision. And the vision suggests uh, that all the unclean animals that were in this uh, net that was let down, that Peter should rise and kill and eat. And that happened three times. And every time Peter would say, I have never eaten anything clean or uncommon. Now, that's interesting. Peter grew up never eating anything clean, unclean or uh, common. Or unclean, pardon me. Or common. Then he spent three and a half years with Christ, which means then that during that time, he did not eat anything that was unclean as well. And so he says, at this particular point, I have never eaten anything unclean or common. Which means then that what people are saying about Jesus changing everything at the cross is not supported by Peter himself. Because he, even after the cross and after the resurrection and after the ascension of Christ and after Jesus coming down and spending 40 days with them, they never ate anything unclean or common. So here we are. Uh, years later, and Peter still has not done that. But this vision troubled him when he woke up and uh, seeing all manner of unclean animals. I'm not sure how many there were in there, 
whether they were rats and uh, pigs and dogs, etc. But here's a, a picture. Now, when the voice said, Peter, kill and eat, Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So it's clear then, up to this point, Peter had never tasted pork or swine. So the idea that Jesus cleaned everything is really not substantiated by this dream. In fact, what, what did this dream really mean? Well, Peter himself gives the explanation and the interpretation of the vision he had. When he went to the Roman, a centurion that had asked for him to come because an angel had appeared to the Roman centurion and told them about this uh, man, Peter, and asked for him to be sent for. Peter then uh, was uh, accompanied by three of the servants of the Roman centurion back to the house. And in fact, the Holy Spirit said to Peter, Peter, I want you to get up and go down, doubting nothing, because there are three men that are looking for you, and I have sent them. So Peter then goes down, uh, makes provision for them to sleep that night, and then in the morning they go off to, uh, back to Cornelius. And then Peter says this, you know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. Now, I understand this because even today, growing up in New York City, uh, there's no question that people, uh, Jews for example, if they're Orthodox Jews in particular, they're very careful not to get contaminated by Gentiles. And so they're constantly washing their hands, which is what most of the world is doing now. So most of the world is practicing the Jewish practice, and that's hand washing. So if they touch something that is uncommon upcoming, common or unclean, they must wash their hands. And that's still the practice today. However, notice it says, God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So this was a way to shake Peter up, trouble him enough that Peter went to Cornelius and discovered what the vision really meant. These Gentiles that the Jews considered to be unclean and uh, unholy actually were selected by God. I remember an experience that we had when we first moved to New York City we lived right next to a, 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 a Jewish man, and we did not understand or know anything about the differences. Uh, we just played ball, and our ball fell in the, in the yard of the neighbor. And that particular uh, day then, my brother, wanting to retrieve his ball, climbed up the fence and went to get his ball. Well, that gentleman, when he saw my brother contaminating his yard with his Gentile presence, literally took my brother and threw them into the fence, the barbed wire fence. Fortunately, my brother didn't get hurt. But however, this separation, this distinction, is very clear in the scriptures between the Jews and the Samaritans, for example. The Samaritans were considered to be dogs by the Jews. So when God wanted the gospel to go to everybody, which was the intent before when Israel had been established, and they did not follow what God had said. Then God pulled people together to become the messengers of his wonderful love and truth that all men are invited to his kingdom. And he had even said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. And so 
this vision that Peter had had nothing to do with food. It had to do with racism or prejudice. And God then helped him to understand that. Well, what about drinking? Drinking alcohol. The Bible said, one is a mock, a strong drink is raging. Whosoever deceived thereby is not wise. We know that alcohol has destroyed many families, many lives. Uh, my dad was a drinker, and because he was a drinker, he was a white beater. And uh, our family suffered as a result. And the Bible then reveals to us that it is not wise to partake of alcoholic beverages. And it's not good. In fact, the Lord does not support it. Now, some people say, well, Jesus made wine in the wedding feast. However, Jesus did not make fermented wine. Jesus made unfermented wine. We call it juice. In those days, the word juice did not exist. So the Bible uses the word wine. Uh, but it could be fermented or unfermented, the word wine. However, Jesus in the Old Testament used fermentation as a symbol of sin. So therefore, Jesus was not making something that was harmful to people. In fact, as a health educator, I know that one shot of alcohol destroys 15 to 20,000 brain cells. And if I know that as a human being, certainly God knows what that alcohol is doing to the brain. So for your sake and my sake, God has given to us counsel to avoid that which destroys family. Now, did Jesus himself drink alcohol? The answer is no. The Bible says that when Jesus was on the cross, suffering terrible pain, that a Roman, hardened Roman soldier decided to relieve his pain by giving him something that was alcoholic. Uh, fortunately, when he was put to Jesus' lips, the Bible says that he, when he realized what it was, he received it not. And here's the verse, Mark 15, 23. If there was a time that would have been acceptable and excusable for Jesus to drink something that was alcoholic, it would have been then to deaden his pain. But even then, Jesus refused to use alcohol. In fact, when he was with the disciples on the night before the crucifixion, and he broke bread and gave them wine, he says, I will dr not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom. Now, you and I know that in the kingdom, the fruit of the vine is not going to uh, become alcoholic. Nothing ferments in the kingdom. So the truth of the matter is that the Lord himself did not partake of alcohol, and neither should you and neither should I. Good counsel that God has given to us. And I have had, as a pastor, a health educator, have had to deal with a lot of people who get addicted to alcohol and what a problem it is. It destroys homes and destroys life. So God gives us counsel to avoid these things. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says, Know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. What about the Christian appearance? Well, God also gives us a, a counsel as to how we should represent him as Christians. And that is how we dress ourselves. So just a few texts. Uh, we know that in the Garden of Eden, there was gold, there was uh, bilium and onyx stone. In other words, in the Garden of Eden, there were, there were jewels, but they were there for the purpose of decorating the garden uh, to uh, sh 
create beauty, just like the flowers and the birds. But these jewels were not on the people, on Adam and Eve. They were on the ground. Uh, the same thing is true with the new Jerusalem. The Bible says that the streets and walls are transparent in gold, the foundations garnished with precious stones. Again, even in the new kingdom, the people will not be adorned with these jewels because the jewels will be there for them to see the beauty of the place that God has uh, decorated for those that love him. And so jewels were not on the people in the beginning. Jewels were not on people in the new beginning. So why is it then that people wear jewelry? Well, basically because it has become a, a tradition. And the problem with tradition is that once somebody does it, and somebody does it, and somebody does it, people then accept it as a habit, and people feel like they don't, they're not dressed, especially ladies. Don't feel they're not dressed unless they have their jewelry on. But that's not the way God created you. God created you with natural beauty. And he intended for you to remain that way because God loves you. Listen, in the, the jewels were in the, New in the Old Testament in the Garden of Eden, and they were in the New Testament in the New Garden of Eden. Now, uh, the Bible says then that God dressed Adam and Eve after they sinned. They put basically a, a, an apron to cover themselves, but God was not satisfied with leaving his children just with a, an apron. God wanted them to be covered because God wanted them to be modest. So the scripture reveals then that we uh, will be overcomers and that we'll be clothed not with jewels and, gar and, and ornaments, but with a righteous robe that God will place upon us and a crown of gold. Now, we know that in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, there are two women. One that represents Christ and the, Christ, the church of Christ dressed in white and with a crown, again, of 12 stars. There's another woman, and that particular woman is, is uh, dressed differently. She's clad with a lot of jewels and ornaments uh, upon her with scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. So the one that represents Christ is plain, dressed with a white uh, robe of righteousness, the one that doesn't represent Christ is the opposite, uh, one that is decked out with jewels and all that. And so the, the Lord has given us this example to help us to understand what he wants of us. In fact, when God called Jacob to follow him, uh, Jacob told his family that they needed to put away the strange gods that were among them to take a bath or wash or be baptized, the way we say it today, and change their garments. And the Bible says and that they gave to Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. They were to erect an altar to worship. And in order to worship God, you have to leave your gods behind. And part of those that were considered to be gods was the jewelry that they were wearing. And so God appeals to his children to reveal their beauty by their purity, their wholeness, their character. Uh, that is what God considers to be lovely in his sight. In fact, when the, he was dealing with the Jews, uh, he told them to take off the ornaments that I may know what to do with thee. Well, Jesus himself did not wear jewelry. You say, how do you know that? When Jesus was on the cross, 
the soldier began to gamble for what he had, his belongings. And so the only thing he had was his robe and clothing. They divided the clothing with the robe they decided to gamble for. Who would get it? What's interesting is that if there had been only one ring, they would have gambled for it. If there had been a necklace, they would have gambled for it. If there would have been a bracelet, they would have gambled for it. But there's no mention that there was a bracelet, that there was a ring, uh, that there was a, a necklace, because Jesus himself gave the example to his children as to how to dress themselves. I don't know about you, but I want to follow my example, Jesus. What do you say? And so, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair, gold or pearls or costly array. So the Lord then has encouraged us that the adorning should not be the outward plating of, of the hair and of the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, but rather the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. I think you want to please your Savior, the one who died for you, the one who lived for you, the one who is pleading in your behalf, and the one who plans to come. And because he gave us an example as to how to eat, how to live, how to treat others, and how to dress, the vows that we make to him, though they may appear to be restrictive, in reality are vows of freedom. They free you from the bondage of having to feel like you have to do this and do that in order to look good. Uh, I've always, as a pastor, have felt bad by young couples who spent 10000 or 20000 or $30,000 to buy an engagement ring. And then once they get married, they find themselves in, uh, in debt because they spend all that money on something that if they were to sell, they could never get the money that they put into it. I've always encouraged young people to consider that the strongest bond that they have is not the ring, but it's their love relationship. If you love each other, that is a, a greater bond that uh, keeps you together than any ring or any uh, emblem you may have. God wants us to love each other. So God says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so, after this manner, in the old times, the holy women uh, also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being subject unto their own husbands. God also says to avoid making cuttings on your, flesh, on your uh, body, nor make prints or marks upon your body. He wants you to be identified as one who is natural, not something that's unnatural. Finally, he wants us to consider how we think. And so, Philippians 4, verse 8, it says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And so the Master has given us all of this counsel because he loves us. He wants the best for you and for me. And so he says, my son, give me thine heart. Let thine eyes observe my ways.
when the volcano uh, Eusebius in Italy began to erupt, people began to flee for their lives. If they can get on boats, they did. However, there were people who um, decided they would stay in their homes and shelter, get the shelter in their homes. And there was a case of one particular uh, woman who when the volcano erupted, she was fleeing for her life. Then all of a sudden she remembered she forgot something. And so she turned around to go back into the house to get what she forgot. Unfortunately, by the time she did that, the lava had already reached the, the place where she was and she was consumed. Years, years later, in the excavation, they found this body of a woman and discovered that her fingers were still clutched. And they wondered how come they were clutched. What did she have in her hands? When they opened their fingers, they discovered a golden earring and a golden earring. She ran back to her house to fetch the earrings that she had left behind and she lost her life. My friends, listen, God has freed us from all of these worldly bondages that come as a result of living in this world. And through his counsel, he can free you to have good health. He can free you to have a happy home. And he can free you from the bondages that are constantly about us to try to force us to follow the Joneses. So Jesus has given you his example. And he says, my son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. Do you love Jesus? And follow him. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that there are many things that we still follow and do that are carryovers from our old lives, uh, burdens that we still keep with us. But you have come to set us free. And you said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So grant it, Lord, that this message will be a message of freedom to those who have been in bondage, to all the customs that have become shackles in their lives. We thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen.